ask you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. We'll begin, actually, in chapter 52, verse 13, and then read all of chapter 53. I'm going to read it all this morning. The Word of God is better than my preaching, I can promise you that. We will be looking at this together. I want to uh, remind you, and really this sermon serves as the opening, if you will, of our time together, our night of worship together this evening at 5 p.m. I really want to encourage you to be here. We'll be gathering together a short service where we'll be singing We'll be looking at a devotional, just looking at God's Word and taking the Lord's Supper together as a church family. So we would love for you to be back with us this evening, 5 p.m., as we celebrate uh, what Christ Jesus has done for us and observe the Lord's Supper in doing that together as a family this evening, 5 p.m. So please be with us tonight. We're closing out our series this morning, The Gospel According to Isaiah. And you know that I believe that we could go to any place in this book, any place in the gospel of uh, or in, in Isaiah, and draw a direct line to Jesus. Man, I believe you can do that from any place in the scriptures. What we've tried to do, what we sought to do over these past few weeks is to hit on those mountain peaks, as I've said, throughout Isaiah, those glorious pinnacles of God's gracious promises to a sinful people. And I believe there's no higher pinnacle, if you will, no higher mountain peak than our passage this morning in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through 53, 12. It's been said of this passage, without exaggeration, it is the most important text of the Old Testament, someone said. Or, it looks as if, even though it was written 800 years before, it looks as if it had been written beneath the very cross on Golgotha at the time. Spurgeon said of it that it is a Bible in miniature, the gospel in its essence. And so using those and understanding uh, that importance this morning, let's read this passage together, Isaiah 52, 13 through all of chapter 53. Behold, the scripture says, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he, has, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth that is in it. God, help us today to know this truth, to believe this truth, and to follow you in it. Father, may your truth be proclaimed in such a way this morning that it draws men and women to you through the power of your spirit. For we believe that it is your spirit and your word that work together to change hearts and change lives. So we ask you, in fact, we even beg you, God, to do that even now. Change each and every one of us so we do not leave this place the same way that we came into it. But by your grace, Father, you make us better believers. By your grace, God, you make us better followers of you. And even by your grace, Father, today, would you turn some hearts that are away from you towards you. Turn lives, Father, that do not serve you. Bring them to service to you. For your glory and for your name and for the exaltation of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. As we begin today, we've read this passage in Isaiah a passage surely you're familiar with, and if you're, if you're not really familiar with or haven't read it in its entirety, I'm, I'm sure you've heard some of those lines before and know where these things come from. But as we start, I want to kind of begin as a way of introduction, which is not my normal practice, I want to begin in Acts chapter 8. I want us to look to Acts chapter 8. I don't have that on the board for you this morning, but follow along with me if you will, and even, even listen as I walk you through what's going on in Acts chapter 8. If you remember, in Acts chapter 6, there was some men that were appointed as deacons. There was some need for service within the church, and the apostles were spending a lot of their time serving and doing other things instead of being able to preach and do the Word. So they appointed some godly, faithful men as deacons. And as we look over the next few chapters, those deacons really show out. The first one is Stephen, and Stephen, in all boldness, steps up and proclaims the truth, even to those who had crucified Jesus, even to those who had put him to death. Stephen proclaims the truth to them of how Christ has come and how the Messiah has brought salvation and life, and yet they have not turned to him. And because of that, led by a band of, of, of um, Jews uh, that were led by Paul or Saul at the time, they stoned Stephen and put him to death. That stoning 
made those who believed in Jesus leave town, if you will. Philip was the first one. He went to Samaria. Even Samaria. Can anything good come from Samaria? Well, Philip went there and proclaimed Jesus, and they heard and they believed, and the Spirit was upon them. And so they rejoiced in that. And now, you see, even as the gospel continues to move forward, Philip shows up again in the last part of Acts chapter 8. In a beautiful story, Philip, who had been appointed as a deacon, hears the word of the Lord coming to him. An angel of the Lord said to Philip in verse 26, an angel of the Lord said to him, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And so Philip takes off and he goes, it says. He rose and he went. Always take note of this when the scripture calls you to do something. When the Lord calls you to do something, the only proper response is to rise and go. And so Philip went. And as he's going, not really sure why or where he is going, he takes off and he sees a, a eunuch there, an Ethiopian eunuch. In fact, not just anyone, but a, a servant of the queen of Ethiopia, not just any servant of the queen of Ethiopia. This is the one who's in charge of all of her riches. This is the one who keeps up all of her books, if you will, all of her money. So this one is one of the most important, if not the most important, servants of Ethiopia. And here, this one who is a eunuch, uh, one who is coming, serving the queen, he finds this one sitting in his chariot, and he hears him reading the prophet Isaiah. And so the spirit said to Philip, go over and join the cherub. And I like the next part. Philip ran. Y'all see how that works. Y'all get in the picture there. Go, the Spirit calls him to go. He got up and he went. When the Spirit says, go and sit with him, Philip runs over to the Ethiopian eunuch there and he hears him and he says, do you understand what you are reading? And there the Ethiopian eunuch responds, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now what we find is that the Ethiopian eunuch was sitting in the chariot reading the prophet Isaiah. So now Philip, having been led by the Holy Spirit to a desert place, is there and he's sitting beside this Ethiopian eunuch in a chariot who's heading back because it says he had been to Jerusalem to worship. Now we're not sure about why he came to Jerusalem to worship. Many of the Jews called those who worship the God of the Jews, but they were Gentiles as God-fearers. Maybe he was a God-fearer. Maybe he was just interested in the gods around and the deities around. We're not really sure, but there, there at worship, he may have heard the word read of Isaiah, and now he has it before him trying to figure out who is this one that they are talking about. Spirit sends Philip, Philip's sitting in there, and they begin to read the passage of Scripture together. And they read, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. They read Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. How can I know unless someone guides me? The Ethiopian eunuch says, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Now, you can almost see Philip licking his chops at this, right? 
You can see him understand. Now, I know why the Lord has brought me here. Who is this? This Ethiopian eunuch says, who is this that it's talking about? And I love what the scripture said in verse 34. After he said, I mean, 35. In 34, he asked the question, whom is this talking about? In 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. Beginning with this passage, he told him the good news about Jesus. Our passage this morning in Isaiah 53 is the last of the servant songs in Isaiah. It's the last place where the Lord tells of that servant who would come. And there's no doubt in my mind or in the scripture's mind as the spirit had led Philip there to the chariot. And he started right there in Isaiah 53. And he told that Ethiopian eunuch who was wondering who is it that this is talking about. He told him about Jesus starting right there. And there's no doubt in my mind that this Isaiah 53 this morning is about Jesus Christ. Some 700 years before, but written, as it said, like he was standing at the foot of the cross. And here in this passage, Isaiah is answering a question. He's answering a question. How can the gracious promises of God come for guilty people? And if you remember, if you remember how this sits in Isaiah... Isaiah is prophesying to the future when Israel would be in bondage and captivity with the Babylonians. He's prophesying there at that point in their bondage and captivity. And he's saying, even though you sinned, even though you neglected me, even though you left me, even though you considered the information and the wisdom of, of necromancers and, and other mediums, it says, even though you considered that greater than me, I'm still not going to leave you. Even though you're in bondage and captivity because of your sin, I'm still coming for you and I'm going to send my servant to you. But as we said last week, how is it that the Lord is going to deal with the sins of his people? He said he's going to save them. He said he's going to bring them back to him. He said he's got a promise. I'm going to save you. But how is it that he's going to bring them back to him and deal with their sin at the same time? Would he simply sweep it under the rug? Would he simply say, oh, let's forget about your sin. I'm just going to bring you back to Israel. Isaiah 53 answers this question. Isaiah 53 answers the question was, how was God going to deal with the sin of his people and yet at the same time fulfill his promises? Fulfill his promises. For he had promised them he'd save them. So how was he going to deal with their sin? And I want to attempt this morning to do just as Philip did with this passage. I want to attempt this morning to do just as Philip did there in that chariot with this passage. I want to tell you the good news about Jesus. The good news about Jesus. Isaiah 52, 12 there where the passage begins kicks off this understanding. But very, very from the beginning we want to see that Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered. Isaiah tells us that the suffering servant would not just have some minor issues of suffering. He tells us that he wouldn't just, just you know, struggle finding some sort of food. He wouldn't just struggle with small things in life. His suffering would be greater than people could even know. In fact, when people looked at him, they wouldn't say, is that the servant of the Lord? They would look at him and say, is that human? Look with me there in, uh, in Isaiah 52. It says, as many were astonished at you, 
Verse 14, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The servant of the Lord, Isaiah 52 tells us, the servant of the Lord would be beaten physically. His appearance would be so marred that it would go even beyond human semblance. So instead of looking at the servant of the Lord when he comes and say, here comes the servant of the Lord, they're going to look at him and say, is this guy, is this even human? Look at his beating. Look at how, what he's been through. In fact, if you read through Isaiah 53, it says he will be pierced, he will be crushed, he will be oppressed, he will be afflicted, he will be cut off from the land of the living, he will be stricken, and he will, he will be, his soul will be poured out even to death. Even to death. Jesus would suffer, it says. The servant would come and he would suffer. Now this is new, right? No worldly expert would have done it this way. No worldly expert would have expected this even. That God would send his servant to save his people and he would come to save his people and he would be so marred beyond human semblance. He would be beaten, he would be crushed, he would be stricken, he would be afflicted. He says, I'm going to send my servant, and this is what's going to happen to him. No expert would have expected this. The servant of the Lord would judge, would come, and he would judge our evil by bearing it himself in his own sufferings. The servant of the Lord would come, and he would, he would take our sin and our shame and our own evil, and he would bear it himself. Even us who know the gospel struggle with this, right? Even us who know the truth of God's word, think about the sufferings that Christ went through there on the cross. Consider those sufferings even this morning in such a small way. I think about it all the time. I think about what Christ went through for us on our behalf. Consider the fact that on the night that he was betrayed, the stress level became so great as he was praying there in the garden that blood began to come out of his pores. There his face became basically a bruise. And so it's no small thing when your face becomes a bruise, if you will, that the next day he was beaten in the face and his beard would be ripped out. It's no small thing to face these things. Think about those 39 lashes. But I don't just think about those 39 lashes. I think about how his back was laid bare to the bone and then they took a robe and pressed it upon it only to rip that robe off. I'm mentioning things that are small compared to arrows or spears in the side and nails in the hands and the feet. The beating that the servant would take says would make him beyond even human semblance. Imagine not only that, imagine that he was also rejected. Imagine the emotion of that. That here comes the servant of the Lord, the Son of God himself, and not only would he be beaten beyond human semblance, he would also be despised and rejected, Isaiah 53, 1 through 3 says. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form, no majesty that we should look at him. There was nothing impressive about his stature. There was nothing glorious about him, no beauty that we should desire him. But he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Here comes the Son of God to the very earth he created, to the very people he made, to the very ones he's coming to save. And instead of loving him and accepting him, they rejected him. They despised him even. 
It's more than just rejection, if you will. It's, a, it's this despising of him. They hated what he came to do. They hated what he brought. The gospels in so many ways point us to this truth. Don't think, by the way, that if you were an eyewitness, it would have been different for you. Imagine the miracles. And the miracles didn't change people's hearts. His own family misjudged him, misunderstood him, did not accept him. John the Baptist himself, who saw the heavens open up, the spirit descend like a dove, and the Father in heaven say, this is my beloved son. John the Baptist himself began to have doubts and uncertainty in the text. He was despised and rejected by them all. And think about the power of this statement. For it says, he was one from whom men hid their face. In verse 3. The servant comes to his people to redeem them and save them. And he was one for whom they hid their face from him. The New Testament puts it like this. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. He came amongst, amongst his very own and even... Even then they did not receive him. Jesus' sufferings that he would take place for us through his death, through his beating and his death, is right alongside with the rejection that he would receive from his people his entire life. I'm going to send my servant to you, the Lord says. He's coming to do my work. He's coming to save you and redeem you. And you're going to beat him to the, past the point of human semblance. And you're going to reject him and despise him. As one commentator said, when the only true remedy for the guilt that tortures and threatens us with eternal destruction appeared right in front of us, our emotions were dead, our decisions misguided, and our minds were corrupted. And he, Jesus, accepted that as the price love had to pay to give us our lives back. In other words, the servant comes and he takes all the suffering upon himself. The servant comes and he takes that rejection. He takes the fact that he would be despised. He takes the fact that they would hide their face from him as though not even to see them. The servant comes and he takes all, takes all of that. Why? Because this was the cost. This was the cost that there would be for you to have salvation and life back. This is the cost that has to come for you to have salvation and life back, for you to be brought out of the bondage of sin and be brought into eternal life. This is what has to take place, it says. My servant will come. I'm not going to sweep sin under the rug. I can't. God's holiness will not allow it. He's not just going to let it pass by. He can't. His holiness will not allow it. He is going to send his servant to take that sin upon himself. And none, none of the suffering were superfluous. None of this suffering was extra, if you will. All of it was necessary, Isaiah 53 says. Why? Because Jesus suffered, and Jesus suffered for others. He suffered for others. This servant, Jesus, was not suffering for his own sins. This servant who would come was not suffering for what he had done. He was not suffering for what he had, had, had how he had forsaken the Lord. He's suffering because of the people. He was innocent, like a lamb led to the slaughter, it said. The suffering that Jesus went through was not for himself. Jesus was a man of sorrows, but they were not his own sorrows. Jesus was a man of sorrows, but they were not his sorrows. He did not deserve them. He did not earn those sorrows. 
It's as if Isaiah wrote this passage like we were there, if you will, as you read it. It's as if Isaiah writes that passage like on the day that Jesus suffered, our servant suffered on our behalf on that day. He writes it like we were at the cross that day. And we were. And we were. It was our sin. It was our guilt. It was our shame that he bore. It was our sorrows that he took upon himself. Isaiah 53 Verse 4 says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God. We look at him in, in shame and in pity. Poor thing, God's after him. We look at him in shame and pity thinking, I'm glad that's not me, but it would have been you. It would have been you. We look at him and say, thank God that's not me. That poor soul over there, you can't even recognize that he's human still, the scripture says. But it would have been you. And we cannot lose what the scripture says because he was ashamed and esteemed stricken by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You see, this one servant who came, Jesus, did not die because of his sorrows. He did not die because of his shame. He did not die because of his guilt. He died in the place of others. He died in the place of us. Our shame, our guilt, our sorrows. God did what we could not do. He shifted the blame. We've been trying to do it since the garden, right? We've been looking at it since the garden when Adam was approached. God, it wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me. It's not only my fault. It's your fault and her fault, Adam says. But in trying and seeking to shift the blame all throughout history for our sin, we've never been able to do that for we are all guilty before God. The blame lands upon us, but God comes and God does what only God can do. And he shifts the blame to an innocent lamb, Jesus Christ, his son. He has laid on him the iniquity of us all, it says. We have discussed from this pulpit, even in the last year, the theological term of imputation. How our sin was imputed to Christ. A banking term, if you will, how it is put on his account. And here we see it in this place. Our sin, our guilt, our shame has been imputed to Jesus Christ in our place. And what we call this in theological terms that you must be aware of, we call this penal substitutionary atonement. Penal being the fact that there is a penalty for our sins. There is a penalty that must be borne for our sins that you cannot just let sin go. It cannot just slip through. That sin demands a payment or a penalty from a holy and righteous God. There is a penalty for our sins. Our sin bears a penalty. And Jesus took that penalty for us which hence the word substitutionary. He takes our penalty for our sins upon himself. He took it not on his own account, but on our account. In my place condemned he stood, right? Y'all know it, bearing sin and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a savior. As the final verse of the chapter states, he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He bore our sins so he can intercede on our behalf. 
He bore my sin, my guilt, my shame. And Isaiah writes, Isaiah 53, as if I was there because I was. My sin was laid upon him. My guilt was laid upon him. My shame was laid upon him. My sorrows were laid upon him. He bore them all. Every beating he took, every blood drop that was shed, it was not shed for naught. Every single one did exactly what it was meant to do. It paid the price for the sins of his people. He bore them all so that he can intercede on my behalf. So that he can say one day, Father, this one is mine. This one belongs to me. He only has that right because he bore the shame and the sin and the guilt and the sorrows that I deserved. This one is mine, Father. I paid for him all that he went through. All that he did, all of the suffering we see that makes us want to hide our face in Isaiah 52 and 53, that belonged to us. It should have been ours. And Christ Jesus took it. Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered for others. And Jesus suffered as a part of God's redemptive plan. Nothing, as I said, in this passage is extra. There's no beating, there's no suffering, there's nothing here that is extra. You think the God of the universe is going to send his son to die and do things that are not necessary? Nothing is extra. Every beating, every piercing, every drop of blood, that was God's plan. None wasted. It said at the beginning of this, in verse 13 of chapter 52, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. In other words, this is his mission. This is what he's come to do. I am sending him with a plan, a plan to redeem my people, and he shall fulfill it. He will do as it is necessary. This is his mission, and it will succeed. And as he says there in verse 14, as many were astonished at you. You put that as right along down there with verse 15. So as many were astonished, so shall he sprinkle many nations. He shall suffer, he shall bear the punishment, but because of what he does, his blood will sprinkle many nations and they will come to salvation. In other words, as it'll say in Isaiah, this blood that is shed, this Savior that is coming, it is too light a thing that he will just be the light to Israel. He will be the light to all the nations and what he does, what he does will bring salvation, not just to you, but to everyone who believes. That's who's coming to you. It's not negligence here. It's not just wastefulness here. He's suffering to fulfill the plan of God in redemption. He's suffering to fulfill the promises of God. And this, this is the only way it could be fulfilled. This is the only way we could find salvation. Verse 6 says, The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And put him to grief. Jesus died not on the whim of a people. He died not because, just simply because the day before they said, give us Barabbas. He didn't die on the whim of the people. Yes, that's all a part of the story as it comes. But you need to know and you need to understand that God's redemptive plan was in place from the beginning and he made sure it would be carried out. 
You need to know and you need to understand as Jesus is on the cross, the Lord God in heaven is not going, shoo, I'm glad that worked out. You need to know and understand that he, the Lord in heaven is not saying there, as Psalm 22 says, he will be pierced, but no bones will be broken. God's up there not wringing his hands going, I hope they don't break his bones. God's in control of this. And the reason why we rejoice in that is because we see our Savior on the cross for a purpose, to fulfill the plan of God and to redeem his people. It was not superfluous. It was not extra. It was all according to plan. And he was successful, the scripture says. He did what God sent him to do. Not on the whim of the people, but the power of God to keep his promises to save and redeem his people. Because God is not just going to sweep sin under the rug. He can't. He's going to lay it all on his son, lay it all on his servant, and his servant will bear it all, even to the very last drop, the scripture says. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, there's none left. For there's no condemnation for those who are in him. And why is that? Because he bore it all for us. He stood in our place and took what we deserved. Peter, in writing in 1 Peter, hearkens back to this passage. And he says about Jesus, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to to, who, to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter says this is the one who came after you when you were lost. You were the one and the 99 were back here but he came after you when you were that one. He came after you when you were a lost sheep. He came after you when you were lonely. He came after you when you were undone. While you were in your sin, this is the one who came after you. And how did he come after you? He bore your sin on himself, and by his wounds you have been healed. This is the one who's come after you. Our great shepherd. Our great shepherd who leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. And we fear nothing. Why? Because he's already been through the valley for us. He's already gone through it. Imagine how that conversation went with Philip and that Ethiopian eunuch. I don't know if we have the entire conversation recorded, but I can hear the eunuch saying, all nations? Are you sure? Are you positive that this is for me? You're telling me this Jesus came, suffered, and died in my place for me? He took what I deserve? Are you telling me that today, Philip? Yes, sir. Let me tell you a little bit more. I'm telling you that from Genesis all the way through the end of the Old Testament, it's telling you about this one who came and suffered and died in your place and rose again. Let me tell you a little bit more. This one who suffered and died in Isaiah 53 is not still dead. He's alive. And now he's interceding on your behalf. And you can have life too. I don't know how the whole conversation went. But Philip can say, even you here today, sir, can know this one. But I do know how it ends. I'm ready to be baptized. 
I believe, let me follow. I want to follow. I love how it says it was a desert place. And the Ethiopian eunuch says, it looks like enough water over here. We know he was Baptist from the beginning as well. I believe I want to follow. I want to follow. That's how that conversation ended that day. The question is, how will this sermon from Isaiah 53 end for you today? And my prayer, if you're a child of God who have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb, that you will be reminded today of just how precious that blood is. That it will give you a greater a greater love, an intense love for him and what he has accomplished on your behalf. That you would not just consider this Christian life to just be something you tag onto yourself. Some little statement you make about your identity that you put there together with, I'm a South Carolinian, I'm white, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian too. Not at all do we see it this way. You must understand that the servant of the Lord came, suffered and bled and died for you. Now your entire identity is found in him and we love him for it. We love him. That's who we are. And may he teach us that even more so today. But maybe you began this conversation this morning just like that Ethiopian eunuch. Tell me about that one. And today you have heard for the first time the love that was poured out on your behalf to make you right before God. And all of that is found in Jesus. You can turn to him this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. I'll tell it like I believe it's true, Father, that we as a people do not deserve to read even Isaiah 53, more so than to know the one who came and Isaiah 53 was speaking of. But God, yet in our sin, in our shame, you have still made him known to us today and that anyone this morning who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved and redeemed. And so God, may no one neglect. May they hear just like the Ethiopian eunuch heard that day, I want him, I need him in my life. I wanna follow him. May that be the case. Make us all better believers here today. And some, God, some in this place may not know you, but today, today, Father, may they not spurn the one who came, suffered, and died, and rose again. All. All, Father, according to your plan. All for your glory. And available for anyone who calls on you. God, may we find that even now. Even as I stand at the front and we sing, God, may you move in hearts and lives. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.